First John 4, if I'm just being selfish, not even thinking about you, I, I say, um, and, and I do love you, by the way, but uh, 1 John 4 has been a refresher to my soul. In fact, um, I, I would just go ahead and say that I think probably it's been that way for us as a church only because when we got to chapter four and started talking about that, uh, that section of scripture, brothers believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, many false prophets have gone into the world. That has been the most downloaded sermon I think that we've had in the history of our church. And so um, I, I know I'm not alone in saying uh, that, that the refreshment of this section of scripture has been wonderful. And when you think about where John starts in this book, he's, he's a about to put a little caveat, a little ending to chapter two to chapter four, which is the meat of what first John is about. And, uh, when you think about how first John four starts, it's really a, a pursuit of truth and truth is important because people, as we've talked about, can sincerely believe in things, but they can be sincerely wrong. And it doesn't mean we hate people. It's just to acknowledge that the truth is significant. If what you believe isn't true, it it can't hold you no matter how genuinely you are believing in it. And so I think it's important that the foundation which we want to rest our souls be true. Like what we share this morning, we want to seek God, we want to know him. And that foundation for which we're proclaiming uh, needs to be true. And we even talked about the idea that um, truth for Satan to come along and be destructive. Satan's message doesn't have to be kill, steal, and destroy. I think that's what he desires, but all he has to do is twist the truth. Because if he can get you to believe into a lie, he can destroy the soul. But if you trust in the truth, there is freedom. So discovering truth, finding truth is, is important for us. And then what I really appreciate about First John chapter 4 is then when you get to verse 7, uh, John wastes no time and after discussing truth to immediately dive into the idea of, of love. And I appreciate right after truth that he dives into love and, and why I think he explains in verse 12. He says, verse 12, no one has seen God. No one has ever seen God. But you, in knowing him, get to demonstrate who God is in a tangible way in this world by how you love others. And so this, this idea of love becomes important. And, and let me just tie this together because I talked a little bit about this last week. But, but the reason I think it's important for John to immediately after discussing truth dive into love is because truth isn't an end in itself. Rather, God wants us to know truth so then knowing truth, we can know and experience him. If you remember in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, we said this together. We talked about the commandments of God. What are the commandments of God, right? And, and, and as if to say, okay, here comes the list. Everyone get ready for all of these commandments. And what John said is, know God and love others. We wake up tomorrow, we live today, that's what God wants us to do. Our pursuit is in knowing him and as we, as we come to know him, God transforms our life because if he, if he wins our heart, he will change our life. And when God changes our life, he changes the way that we see this world because we learn and having the heart of the father to, to look at this world the way that God does and what God loves in this world is people because he created them in his image and he's pursued them with his life by coming to this world and giving his life on the cross. And so he takes this idea of, of, of truth and he brings it to love and, and he solidifies it in the commandment that he tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, to know God and, and to love others. The declaration of truth isn't an end in itself, but it's rather for a purpose, and that is to know God and to love others. The intentions of truth are to reflect the beauty of God, meaning 
I don't worship truth. I worship Jesus. Um, I worship in truth. The Bible says in John 4, 24, that he who worships must worship in spirit and in truth. We certainly worship in truth, but we don't worship truth itself. Rather, we worship Jesus. Uh, I, I used this, uh, this similar thought last week in talking about love because we looked at that famous phrase, God is love. And what does that mean? And as I talked about in our culture today, we oftentimes make a mistake when we read the phrase that God is love by, by really switching the re- reversal of roles there and saying love is God. Love is God. And sometimes we look at that phrase and we think, well, what's the danger of that? Well, the danger is, is that we elevate love above God as if to say it really doesn't matter what God you believe in, rather whatever God that is, he's love. And so love is more important than God. But really the truth is love flows from God. And the reason we experience love is because of God, because God is love and love is about giving itself away. Because God's nature is loving, and we don't mean just arbitrarily any God, but very specifically, God who's come in the flesh for you, Jesus. God is love, that we understand that love didn't exist before God, but love exists because of God. And the same is, is true for truth. That we, we should yearn for truth, we should yearn for love, and to be loving, and to demonstrate truth. But truth isn't an end in itself. Truth exists because of him. And so in in desiring love and truth, we should see that the ultimate peak in all of that is God himself. Truth isn't an end and love isn't an end, but God is the end of those things. And when we pursue truth and we seek to be loved, what we're ultimately pursuing is the one through which all of those things flow, which is God. Truth and love exist because of the Lord. And so we should hunger for those things. The way to know God is through truth and love. And so when you come to 1 John 4 now, where we are in this section of Scripture, verse 13, what John is going to build on in this section is to now take those ideas of truth and love, and and he's going to bring it to that peak to show us how those things flow from the identity of who God is. He really wants to confidently shape you in God. When we walk out of here, I mean, that's our goal this morning, that your confidence would grow in the understanding of, of your desire to know God and want to know God. Um, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he gave this very, very powerful statement at the very first chapter of this book. Knowledge of the Holy is a great Christian classic that then talks about the character of God, but he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The reason for this is because what you believe will determine how you behave. And so what you think about God is important. I should probably say who you even identify as the real God of your life. Like, I know sometimes we'll talk about God, but then treat him like a puppet because we ourselves see ourselves as God and God more as a servant that's existing to meet my needs. But the idea of the one true God, what comes to your mind when you think about him is the singular uh, most important thing a, a, about us. And so that question of who is God? Who is God is, is paramount to understanding how this love and truth all fit together and what John is expressing throughout this, this portion of scripture for us. How we view God will determine how we live. 
And what John does in this section is he starts to explain to this this, this picture once again of uh, of who God is. Now, when we ask that answer that question, who is God? I want us to know this isn't an exhaustive discussion. Like. I really appreciate about Scripture that when, as Scripture is written, the authors that, that record Scripture inspired by God write based on a needs-to-know basis. What I mean is, in life, sometimes we're hungry to learn certain things at certain times than we are of other things. If it's important to me, I, I want to know it. And as the writers of texts of Scripture start to demonstrate God throughout, throughout those texts, they do so in light of the need that they're facing. And in 1 John chapter 4, it's in light of the idea of being confident before God and in knowing Him. And when some of, some of us think about God, some of us see God as a punisher. <laughs> He's there just to tell me when I mess up. Some of us, maybe even uh, when we think about God, we, we do so from a distance because we see Him as absent. Or maybe sometimes uh, we just don't think He's good. But one of the words I, I want to hone on in as, as we think about God uh, that we haven't discussed in this series together is this idea of, of God being a father. Because that, that, that thought, that statement casts an image for us and the identity of who God really is. In Romans chapter 8 verse 15, Paul gives a statement about God here that I think is a very summarized statement of this section we're about to look at in 1 John chapter 4. But this is what John says. For, or for, excuse me, what Paul says, for we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, meaning Daddy. This word is a, is a word of intimacy, of connectedness. It's a beautiful description of how God wants to meet you where you are and, and just take care of you in that moment. This idea of being a, a father means God wants to be personal to you. I mean, some cultures, this might blow the idea of God out of the water. Some people in other cultures, religions would see God as this distant figure. They hope they just keep happy. But in Christianity, no, it's a, it's a God that pursues you in his love, despite your sin, that wants to know you in a very personal way to the point that this word of intimacy is used to express that daddy. You know, as I think about the beauty of that word, I, I think Satan also knows this word. And I think he wants to crush the idea of what a father is. So it messes our picture of God as father in our minds. You know, you think about that word father. Many of us today might even have fatherly wounds. Some have even dubbed this generation of, of adults today as the fatherless generation. Dads maybe are absent Maybe uninvolved, maybe cowardly, not wanting to lead, or maybe, maybe having led so strongly that you didn't really see love through that. Maybe when you think about this word father, rather than run towards it, it's a, wor- a word that pushes you further away because it stirs up negative emotions. Maybe you're without a dad. Or maybe as a father, you feel like you've failed. <laughs> you know, I think about this word father and maybe an, an encouragement for us. Um, as you think about the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus is described in scripture as fully God, fully man when he became flesh, 100% God, and he becomes flesh. and He's 100% man to be able to cover your sins. He had to become flesh as you are flesh. 
And in his display as being flesh, what we know about Jesus is that he spent time, uh, maybe in his childhood, but during his life without a father. He had an earthly father, Joseph tells us in the beginning of scriptures, but what you find quickly throughout the story of Jesus that Joseph is no longer mentioned. And yet what you see in the life of Jesus is that uh, Jesus continues to live in in a healthy way. And why? Well, because he's led by his heavenly father. Meaning, regardless of what you've experienced from an earthly father, good or bad, um, we all have the example of what true love is, of the picture of how a father should live through a heavenly father. So fathers, if you want to learn to be a better father, the statement of this word of God being a father is to say to us, go to God and learn. Or son, if you want to be loved By a father that will not fail. Go to God. Or maybe maybe you've even been a rotten son and you want to learn to better love your father. I would say by learning to love through our heavenly father, we better learn to love our earthly father. God is a good father that never fails. When it comes to being a parent, whether you're... um, a mother or a father, look, we, we will fail. When it comes to, in this section of scriptures, it calls us to love people. We're going to fail at some point. But here's the beauty of, of the thought that we will demonstrate and attempt to, to show the love of God through the way that we live our lives for his glory in this world. But at some point, we will always fall short. But we have the beautiful position of then directing people's attentions to the love of the Father that will never fail. Because God is good. And so when we dive into this section, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, I want to read this to us. But I want us to read it from that perspective of, of God in his position as Father really reaching out to you. And look what it says, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in him and God abides in him. Remember, John started this section. You're going to see in verse 17, he's going to bring this up. He's going to talk about your confidence before God again. Like be confident before God, this father that's pursued you. He started this, if I were to point us back to this, this idea of being confident all the way back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Look what he says, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And then he gives this statement. So you want to think about how, how, how do we have this confidence He starts, verse 28, confidence. Verse 17, this idea of confidence. Well, in between all this, he communicates to us this way of confidence before God. And he says it like this. See what kind of of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. What kind of love the Father has given to us. This idea of confidence comes through wrapping ourselves in the love that he has demonstrated towards us. 
This idea of father attached to that demonstration. So when we come back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, he's, he's starting to explain to us again this identity of God, this, this idea of bringing his spirit, this idea of father sending son to rescue you. Not abandoning you, but God being good and always being with you. And so if I just break down this section of scripture for us, if we look at verse 13, he says, uh, the spirit abiding with us. Some people have questioned what exactly the spirit is, whether it's, it's just this idea of, of attitude of spirit, the spirit among us, or is it talking about the Holy Spirit? Because this, the word spirit can sometimes be ambiguous. The context really leans into what it's talking about. And so some people have looked at this verse and said, okay, we, we as, as, as God's people, we know that he abides in him because this attitude of a spirit is among us, which could be true. <clears throat> so we connect to God through that. God has put his spirit within us so that we can, being made in his image, connect into knowing him. That could be true. But I think rather what this passage is really meaning is the Holy Spirit. Because what he's saying right after this is there's also father and son. So he's talking about the triune God working here in your favor for your benefit that you walk confidently before God by seeing this God that has pursued you. So his spirit made known in your life. And then he says this, we testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. I love this phrase. We have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son. If you think about the way First John started, John in chapter one, he said to us from the beginning, which he has seen, which he has heard, he is declaring to you, right? He uses this apostolic story as, as Grandpa John in his 90s starts to write this letter to us. He starts on the basis of having been an eyewitness to what Jesus has done in this world. He walked with Jesus. He heard from Jesus. He touched Jesus. That's how he starts 1 John chapter 1. But then in in chapter 4, he sort of evens the playing field for us. Rather than pretending to be something super elite in Christ because he walked with the living Jesus, he now takes this word we and he doesn't just include himself here. He's talking to the body of believers. He's saying, look, this isn't special to me. This is really all of us. That we have all seen and testify about the Father sending a Son to be the Savior of the world. What John is saying is that we've, we've all experienced this in Him. We've seen what God has done by Jesus on the cross. In a very personal way. This isn't, this isn't something John is saying distant from us, but with us. Saying that whatever John possesses in his relationship with God, it, it, it rests with all those that follow after Jesus. And so he's saying because of this, this is what we testify to. This is what we proclaim because this is what shapes our, our identity with God when we talk about being confident before him. And so he goes on in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he and God so that we have come to know him to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. John is saying, look, we've come to know him. There's verse 16, right? We have come to know, not just intellectual knowledge, but in a very, very personal way. And the way this has happened is the confession of the purification of your soul, the confession before God. 
To say out of every, anything and everything I could belong to in this world as a being that looks for my identity in worship. As a being that tries to find its worth and value in this world. I place my identity in Jesus. Because the Father has extended his love by sending Christ to rescue our soul. And so we testify to this confession which brings us into this intimacy of knowing and there we abide. So he says, we are abiding in this. And the beauty of abiding has to do with the shaping of your heart in these words. I love abiding. You think it, it really just means this is where you're going to sit for a while, right? I'm going to camp here. Uh, this summer, in abiding with the children at camping, started to realize, and that abiding, that you eventually you just become one with nature there. Like camping with kids is one of the dirtiest experiences. <laughs> it's just filth all day long, and you just become a part of the elements around you. To the point that I think if someone just passed by you, they may not even, they may not even under, see that you're a human being. Like you just look like a part of the dirt of the, the soil there. You abide at camp, and you just become one with the camp, right? But the same is true with God. You abide in him, and what happens? The shaping of your heart. The transformation of your life. The demonstration of God's love as you know him, that you may be confident in him because of his love for you. We don't love God so that he loves us. We love God because he loves us. He's going to tell us that in, in verse 19 in just a moment. But, but then he goes on in verse 17. He says this, by this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. This word love means it's complete. So you're completed in his love. As you abide, as you sit with him, as you know him, as you see the love that's been demonstrated for you, this love is perfected. And in your life, this confidence in your identity with God is made known. Um. I love this word confidence just to camp on it for a minute because I think in our culture as we read words like that, there should be a little bit of a paradigm shift in our thinking because in our society today, when we talk about confidence, what we really use oftentimes is this word masked behind the word self-esteem, right? You need to be more confident. You need to have some self-esteem. You need to think great things about yourself. You're awesome because you're awesome. That's usually how that goes, right? But can I tell you where biblically confidence comes from? You're not awesome because you're awesome. You're awesome because God's awesome. I mean, he's the one that made you brilliantly. He's the one that created you for his purpose. So understanding him and the truth of who he is then provides you the foundation for understanding who who you are. Being cool just because you say you're cool doesn't make you cool. If the danger is in finding your identity just in your own self, is that what happens when you're not great? What happens when you fail? Where is your worth? Our confidence in this verse is not based on you. Our confidence is based in God. We have confidence not because we come to this verse and we say, God, I'm great, therefore you can love me now. I don't need a great me. I need a great God. And that's what John's saying here. When we talk about God's love, this isn't arbitrary. This isn't distant. This is personal. And the reason that you can be confident in, in his love is not because of you. It's not because you're great. It's because God's great. And the greatness of who he is, I think he wants to do a great thing in us. But that, that type of love from the Father is what builds our confidence. Confidence. 
To think, why would God want to love me? Or why, can I, why should I come to him? Why can I cry, Abba, Daddy? I, I, I'm nothing. Well, it's not because of you. It's because of him. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is, look at this, no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved. There is no fear in this love. Because his love is not against you. No fear. Believer, can I tell you about the beauty of just coming before God today? No fear. There is no fear in his love because his love is not against you. And some people have a picture of God full of fear. Fear is a bad motivator. In the short term, it'll get someone to do what you want, right? You cast enough fear in their heart, they'll follow. But you know what you lose in the process? Them. But you know what God's most interested in? Not in your obedience, but your heart. Now, that sounds tricky for a minute, but so let me elaborate. God's more interested in your heart than your obedience because when God gets your heart, he will change your behavior. But if God dominates you out of fear, what he distances you from is your heart. Like you think in the role of a parent, and since we're talking in terms of a father, dad, if you come to your kids and you just force them to behave because, like they'll behave because they fear you. But what happens when they get older? They run away. They don't want that relationship. They just can't wait to get old enough to get out of the house. Fear works in the immediate, but you lose so much in the long run. And what you should want as a parent more than anything is your child not to behave because they're afraid of you, but your child to behave because they love you. And that's God. We love because he first loved. His heart's not about striking fear into your life, but about demonstrating his love towards you so that in response you love him in return. Fear will motivate, it will, but it's a horrible motivator. I think there's a time and place to act in a panic when, when, when you know someone's life is on the line. But when your child, even in discipline, knows in the midst of that discipline that you're still for them and the reason that you're doing what you're doing, you even in discipline can win their heart. Because your motivation isn't, isn't fear, it's love. And that's what it's saying about God when we think about being confident before him. Why, why should I, out of all people, be confident before God? Because it's not because you're great. It's because he, he is great and he has passionately loved you and, and extending his love towards you to where in your life, no matter what you've done, even when you mess up, your heart, your soul can cry out, Abba, Father. Now, when you think about fear, I know the contrasting word of this popular phrase in Scripture uh, Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise the wisdom and instruction. 
Now, how is it the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? And then now I'm telling you in this verse, right, it says that, that perfect love casts out fear, so you shouldn't be afraid. Like, well, how does that work? Well, let me, let me just say it like this. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, he's saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This idea of fear, there's a reverence to the authority of God, and I think that is paramount to your faith. We, we shared this a little bit last week in t- contrasting love and propitiation or God's wrath and love. Like, t- just saying God's loving doesn't really always mean a whole lot until you contrast it with the idea that God is also just. And when you see the justice of God, it magnifies the love of God in our lives. We see his love, the idea of him being a savior, his grace, making so much more sense in our lives and being so much more beautiful. We understand the wrath and justice of God on the back end of that. Uh, the fear of God works in a similar way to understand, look, there's a, there's a fear of God in which you revere him, that power of God. You don't need a great you, you need a great God, right? That fear recognized and reverence that great God. But you're not to be afraid of him as a follower of Jesus. The best illustration I've ever understood in my life in the fear of God was when I was a teenager. I lived a little bit in Mobile, Alabama. I went to high school there and, uh, and in, in Mobile Bay, Fairhope, Alabama. And um, one thing that everyone knows in that area is that that is referred to as Hurricane Alley. <laughs> and I remember as a kid, my, my dad likes to do a lot of things that are uh, adrenaline-based, let's say. And, and so we tend to do a few crazy things. Like he had a Camaro and we like driving in the Camaro, especially during the, the Hurricane Alley storms. So like tropical depressions, tropical storms, hurricanes. I remember being in his car driving into those things. Today I look back and think my dad was crazy, right? But, uh, but at the time I owned no house, no car, so no risk for me, right? Like I, I think about the way I raised my kids today, they would never be able to do that, right? But I remember as a kid, my, my parents would tell me like, here's my safety check as a kid. Like if someone grabs you, kick him where the sun don't shine and run, right? That, that was like the extent of my safety talk as a kid, and now it seems like we're more careful today. But, but I remember this one particular hurricane, it got bad enough where my, my dad and I, we, um, we liked to cruise the beach and watch the waves crash in, and, and uh, we went back home just to, for a little more safety. And I remember being in this house, and uh, the storm just relentless. And all of a sudden, just a second, just in a matter of just a second, it just stopped. The whole storm just stopped. I thought, that's strange. I remember walking outside and I looked up and I saw all the debris and damage laying around and I, I looked up and the sky is just completely clear. Miles and miles, not a rain cloud in sight. I couldn't understand what was going on. I mean, as far as the eye could see, there was no hurricane around me. I mean, there was a trees and forests around so I couldn't see more than maybe five or six miles. I'm like, what in the world? So I go back inside and I turn on the radio and I find out that our particular town was in the middle of the eye of the hurricane. All this force around it. And here we are in these moments, safe on the inside. We revere God because he is a force to be reckoned with. He holds all things in his hands. And at the center of who he is is the place he holds you in his love. That power does not fight against you. That power fights for you. And as you stand in the middle of that eye, you have reverence for the authority that it carries. But in those moments, you rest in a safety. When we think about the fear of the Lord, this is how John wants us to understand it. Why? So that you have confidence. And the God that you come before. Do you have 
his perfect love. Whoever fears him, whoever is afraid of him, has not been perfected in his love. And God calls us to step into him. And sometimes we hesitate and we're afraid to do so of, for one of two things, really. It's either we have a wrong perception of who he is or we just don't know him. But when we know him, the Bible says in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. We run to God in love because we see the way he runs to us with grace. God loves us. Now, I'll tell you this. My relationship with my father today is, is a, I have a great relationship with my dad, but it hasn't always been like that. I've been one that has struggled with the identity of father. Like my father wasn't around for a lot of my childhood. I love my dad dearly. I have a good friendship today. Um, but growing up in a single mother, mothered home, um, one of the things I had as a child, I, I was just very timid, shy child. Um, kind of miraculous that I even stand in front of a church and ever teach. But I was a kid in high school that when you gave me a book report, like I would read a book, but I, I wanted to take the F in the grade because I did not want to stand up in front of people and give anything oral at all. Like me, crowds, forget it, right? But I remember when I first became a, a believer in Christ and, and I started reading the Bible and I started seeing the things that Jesus called his people to do. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't. I don't want to do any of this. Like, this, is, this requires conversations with people of which I don't, like, can, is there, is there, where's the verse that says live in a cave and be happy there? Like, that's what I want to look for, right? And, and then I started reading this statement that God gave throughout Scripture. I started to notice this statement God gave continuously throughout Scripture, but the first time I encountered it was with Joshua. And you think about this book of Joshua. Um, Joshua is the guy that follows Moses. Who wants to do that? uh, I don't want to be the one that follows Moses. It's like leading the people downward because I don't know that you can get any higher than Moses, right? So, but Joshua leads Moses. You can imagine coming out of of this land of slaves. They've wandered for all these years, and now he's got to be the one that leads them into the land and and gives these group of slaves an identity and a whole system to operate under. Like that just seems crazy to me. And and then I, I read this statement that when Joshua was put in the position, the first statement that God gave him. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And I just stop there and say, why? Because I'm great. Then he says this, don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. And here's why. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's interesting, if you read through scripture, what you find in a lot of people that God called to him, which God calls all of us, guys. As they begin to expose where they are in that calling, they didn't want to follow it. They were afraid. But God continued to show up in their lives and give them this statement. I am with you always. Never abandoned. And the valleys of pain and the mountains of triumph Every step of the way, he's not distant from you. He's with you. He's with you. Not because of me, but because of him. You know, when I get to the end of this section of scripture, it says, verse 20 and 21, it then calls you to love each other. And I think about the way God calls us to love, the only way we're going to do that, the only way we're going to be capable of doing that, 
It's by resting ourselves in the love of this God who gives us the strength to move forward. So when I think at the end of sermons, it's, it's really good sometimes to call us to action steps as it relates to a text, but I don't know that this section of scripture needs an action step. I think rather what it needs is just for us to rest. How can I be confident to do what God calls me to do unless I rest in God? How can I be confident to do anything for God unless I am aware of his love for me? His presence in my life. To allow my soul to hunger for truth and love, but not as an end in itself, but to recognize that the end of those things is God himself. I doubt many of us will ever get to the end of our lives and think, you know, I spent too much time with the Lord. (laughs) But rather what God wants us to do is to seek his face. To rest in the goodness of what this statement is. So when we think in chapter 2, verse 28, all the way into chapter 4, that confidence, that confidence has everything to do with the identity of God and our understanding of it and resting in the security of it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Um, one of my favorite parenting moments as a dad, um, I think I've shared this before, so pretend like you might have heard this for the first time. But uh, this, this moment was so important to me that I, I just think about it fairly often. When, um, when one of my kids, four years old, uh, they, they injured themselves pretty significantly. Um, and I remember picking them up and holding them and just comforting them, rocking them. They're crying. And in the midst of the tears, um, my child stops and, or one of my children always stops and he raises his head back and he looks at me face to face and he just says, dad, can grownups hold grownups? And I was bewildered by the question. I, I, I mean, that, I mean, that's a question, but how do you answer that question? Right? So I, I just was like, <laughs> like I have weird image pictures in my head now, like, <laughs> cause I'm cradling him like this. I'm, can grown-ups hold grown-ups? What does that mean? So why are you asking, can grown-ups hold grown-ups? In the midst of his pain, he just says, because dad, I don't want you to ever stop holding me. And when I look at the phrase of Romans 8, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 and on, this is God saying to you in the tears of struggle and the mountains of rejoicing, he is never going to stop holding you because he's never going to stop loving you. He is a good father. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.